if you have your bulletin, you can pull the insert out there if you'd like to, to follow along with regard to our notes and the outline that I've given you there. We continue to study the book of Ephesians, which we have been doing since September, since we started, trying to look from God's word as to what a church should be and what Christians should be in the church and also in the community. And so we've had, we've been plugging along through the book of Ephesians and now we are on Ephesians chapter 4 verse 28. That's where we are today. A little Bible study today, but also looking at the details of Ephesians 4 28. It's only one verse, but it's, it's huge. It's monumental in terms of the truth that is there in terms of its practicality for us as Christians in today's world, even though that verse was written 2,000 years ago is vitally important for us today. Practical implications, because the title, if you noticed, I put holy labor or holy work. So today I want to talk about how Paul gives us Christians and the church really a concept of what it means to to have a holy work ethic. Because work or labor is very important. And work is basic and foundational, not just to the church and not just to Christians, but work is basic to humanity. And if I take you back to Genesis chapter 1, this is how basic work is, the concept of work. Because in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, when God created everything, there were only a few things that were essential and that he highlighted that would carry over all time in a transcendent manner to all of humanity, to every person. Things like food. That's mentioned in Genesis 1 and 2. Very important. Social intimacy and how you interact with people. Very important. Worship. And the fourth one is work. Work, the concept of work. So Genesis one twenty-eight: work is basic, basic to humanity, being created in God's image. It's a basic expectation he has of us as people, as humans. God created the world, and on the sixth day he made Adam and Eve, and the first thing he said to them was, be fruitful, multiply, verse 28 of Genesis 1. And then he said, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over creation. That is work. So inherent in the very purpose of why God created the human race was to work, to manage things. And that was before the fall. Some people say, well, work is a result of the curse. No, it's not. God gave work before the curse. By the way, work is a gift from God to humanity. Another specific example of God giving work to humanity before the fall. So if you don't like to work, you can't use that as an excuse. Well, that's a result of the curse. No, it's not. It's basic to humanity. Look at chapter 2. Uh, chapter 2 emphasizes the details of day 6 when God created Adam and Eve and gives them several different injunctions, one of which is God put Adam in the Garden of Eden and he gave him some work to do. He gave him the responsibility of naming all the animals and taking care of the ground and the earth, and look at verse 15 of Genesis chapter 2, if you have your Bible there, it just says, the Lord God took Adam, the man, he put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it, to work in the Garden of Eden, to manage it, to care for it, to work. So there's two specific examples showing us that work was given as a command, an expectation to humanity even before the fall. And then after uh, the fall, Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve sinned, the devil uh, sinned, The snake was used as a tool, and God curses all four of them. And in the curse that God gave to Adam, the head of the human race, in verse 17 of Genesis 3, God said to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, that wasn't the sin, by the way. 
Because you've listened to the voice of your wife. Husbands, listen to your wife. Um, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it. Here's the curse. Cursed is the ground because of you. Literally, it's cursed is the earth because of you. He just told him to cultivate the ground. Now he's cursing that which he has to cultivate. From now on, you know what? I'm going to put weeds in the ground and make it more difficult for you as a result of your sin and disobedience. Cursed is the earth because of you, Adam, in toil, laborious labor, exhausting work. You shall eat from it. Now that's the curse. Work is not the curse. Toil, wearisome, burdensome labor is the curse. Adding pain to our work was the curse. Toil, you shall eat from it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles. The earth shall produce for you. You shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face, by the sweat of your brow, by hard work. Blood, sweat, and tears is going to ha- how you're going to have to survive in this world. Work is hard now because of the curse. Well, how long do I have to work? Well, until you return to the ground, Adam, until you die and go back to where you came from. Because from the earth you were taken, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So there's uh, some specific examples in Genesis that tell us uh, work is basic to humanity. It is basic to our calling here on earth. It is basic and expected until the day we die and either go to heaven or hell. Work is basic. We need to talk about it. We need to know about it. One of the amazing things, another wonderful testimony about the Bible and why it is different than every other religious book in the world is the Bible presents a very specific, detailed, comprehensive theology of work. How to have a biblical ethic in every last detail. There is no other book that does that. The Quran doesn't do that. It doesn't go into detail about how we're supposed to work. The Bhagavad Gita of the Hindus doesn't do that. Only the Bible does that. A comprehensive, detailed delineation from God telling humans what is expected of them with regard to work. The externals and even the internals are attitudes about work. It's all there all in the Bible. As a matter of fact, the book of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes are literally entire treatises on how to have a godly worldview and perspective about work. And again, this is basic to our humanity. Everybody needs to be working to whatever degree that they can. I think of even just looking around the husbands who are dads in this congregation for the most part that I know. I just think about your typical work week. Those of you that I know, you spend you know, 8 to 10 to 12 hours a day just at your job. And if you do the math, I'm not a good mathematician, but anyway, you're looking at 60, 70, 75, 80 hours spent just working, which means not counting time you sleep, the amount of time you spend working outnumbers tremendously the time you even spend with your own spouse and your children and time at church. So what do you spend most of your time doing? Working. It consumes your life as the head of your home. And that just, just a reminder once again of how important work is, how it is so much a part of our life. And so as Christians, we better do it the right way. God has a very clear, specific expectation. So let's go ahead and look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28, the specifics of God's expectation for Christians and the church with respect to how are we supposed to work as, as Christians. What is our work ethic? What is a godly work ethic? What is holy labor supposed to be like? Paul gets real specific. I'm going to go ahead and read Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. Again, just a reminder, starting at verse 25, Paul just starts giving Christians imperative after imperative after imperative after imperative, or command after command, or obligation, obligation, for the rest of the book to the end of Ephesians 6. How we are supposed to live, and he covers every area of life. And today, it's your work ethic, according to the Apostle Paul. 
Paul says this to the Christians, and this is a command. Let him who steals, steal no longer, but rather let him labor, performing with his own hands what is good, in order that he may have something to share with him who has need. Christian, be a worker and be a hard worker. In a nutshell, that's what he's saying. And so I've come up with three principles that we can glean from the Apostle Paul just regarding a basic work ethic from a Christian point of view or a biblical worldview. So on the outline, here's what they are. Point number one that Paul makes is quit living selfishly and stop stealing. Off the bat, that's what he says. Stop stealing. Second one he says is be self-sufficient and keep working. By the way, exclamation point, these are commands for the Christian. And then number three, which we'll get to, get your motives right and start sharing. So there they are, three real simple commitments, obligations that Christians are expected to have regarding their work ethic. Let's begin with the first one, quit living selfishly and stop stealing. He says, let him who steals, steal no longer. The first part of verse 28, let him who steals. Uh, The word there, him who steals, says the American standard. That's just a translation of one word. Actually, let him who steals, that's four English words just for one Greek word. Or literally, the stealer, the one who is stealing is the word. It's a participle. It's in the present tense, which means it's an ongoing, regular pattern and habit of behavior. It is a lifestyle. So apparently, Paul knew the Ephesians. He planted that church. He pastored that church for three and a half years. He corresponded with that church. He went back and visited that church. He trained the leadership of that church. He had regular people giving him input about what was going on in the church. And one of the things that Paul obviously said in line of this verse is there are people who called themselves Christians who, had, who were in the Ephesian congregation who apparently were stealing. Now, he doesn't give us the details of how they were stealing and in what way and what they were taking. It doesn't matter. Because all he had to do is just give one. He just addresses it very simply. Those of you in the congregation who call yourselves Christians, who make a habit of stealing, knock it off. Stop stealing. So that's how he begins his Christian philosophy of a work ethic. Starts there. Stop stealing. Present tense. So it means that there were people in the congregation who had a regular pattern of stealing. Whether it was pilfering, we don't know. But Paul addresses it. Stop, Stop it. Knock it off. So it's very simple. Straight to the point. And that's what uh, Paul does here. You mean to tell me that, so well, this would imply that there are people in the church who steal possibly. Yes. Apparently there's stealing that goes on in the Christian community. Apparently there's stealing that actually goes on in some churches is the implication here from the apostle. Can you believe that? Even a church that Paul planted and pastored, there were sinners in his church and some of which manifested their sin by stealing. This should not surprise us because uh, every one of us is a sinner. But Paul knew about it and he wants to expose them. And if they are truly Christians, he's telling them, you know what, you need to stop. And he's going to get to specific reasons why stealing should be uh, non-existent in a Christian's life and in the Christian community. Some people have a hard time believing that uh, Christians can be stealing or that stealing can go on in a church. Uh, But it does. I mean, think about Jesus himself. He trained 12, he called 12 apostles trained them himself personally for three and a half years, the apostles. And the apostles, by Jesus' design, these 12 apostles were going to be the foundation of Jesus' church plant. Did you know that Jesus planted a church? Yeah, so we're in good company. He was the first church planter. 
And he knew that he needed the right leadership in place to plant that church. He needed a solid foundation. So he chose these 12 guys, trained them, called them apostles for three years. He's training these guys, modeling these guys, praying with these guys, working with these guys, pouring his love and life into these guys. And at the end of his three and a half year ministry, one of these 12 guys is exposed as a thief, a stealer, one who steals, just like Paul is saying, one of the apostles chosen by Jesus to plant the church, to be on the advisory council board. We know this, it was Judas, because in the last week of Jesus' life, in John chapter 12, Judas is exposed. John the Apostle writes about it. Jesus was ministering to some woman, actually the woman was ministering to Jesus, and she poured a whole bunch of expensive perfume on Jesus' feet out of worship, and it was worth a year's worth of wages, and here in the Silicon Valley, that's, uh, wow, that's a lot of money, $100,000 for some of you, maybe 200000 or a million. This is a lot of money. And the Apostle saw this as she's pouring out the ointment that is so expensive on Jesus' feet and then dripping into the ground, going to waste. And Judas speaks up and he chides and rebukes the woman for wasting all of that perfume. And he says, why did you do that? We could have sold that and made a lot of money and, and, and given it to the poor. And then John the Apostle makes a little parenthetical comment. You know what? Judas, he's a liar. He didn't care about the poor. He wanted that money for himself. And John says this, for Judas was the banker or the treasurer of the twelve in Jesus. Did you know that during the course of their three years of ministry as they walked around all over the place? And for whatever reason, they entrusted Judas to be the treasurer and the keeper of their funds. And John notes that for three years, Judas has been pilfering from the treasury from the apostles. He is a thief. He's a stealer. And for three years, it went totally unnoticed. So he was a very clever thief, very sneaky. And it's interesting, the other eleven apostles never even suspected that Judas was stealing. But uh, Jesus exposed him. All that just to say, even within the very core leadership of Jesus' church plant, there was a thief among them that needed to be dealt with. So yes, stealing can go on in the Christian community. Yes, stealing can go on in the church. Yes, Christians can be tempted to steal. They shouldn't. This is basic. You know, it's one of the Ten Commandments from the Old Testament, Exodus 20, right? Do you know your Ten Commandments? One of them was, Thou shalt not steal. And in the Old Testament, there were different ways that God dealt with that stealing. And uh, sometimes you had to pay it back four times over with interest. Uh, sometimes people were executed in the Old Testament for stealing. I think of Achan in Joshua chapter 7. As they went into the city of Jericho and God said, Don't take anything of the plunder when you wipe out Jericho. And there was a Jewish man named Achan who took some of the plunder. He knew he wasn't supposed to. He did it secretly. The story is told to us in Joshua 7. And he took some gold and a fancy, expensive jacket, and he went to his tent when he thought nobody was looking. Actually, nobody was looking except for God. Went into his tent, and he buried all this very expensive stuff in his tent. And he thought he got away with it. And then God exposed him because God knows everything. And God judged him severely. As a matter of fact, in Joshua 7, verse 1, it says, The anger of the Lord burned against Achan. God hates stealing. His anger burns because of it. And so he punished Achan. Achan was mistaken. Did you know that? Forsaken. And taken. And he was forsaken of the Lord for taking the bacon. That's what I read in Joshua 7. Um, And then he ended up bacon, getting raking over the coals. But anyway, all that just to say the consequence, at the end of the story, Achan was convicted, and Joshua said, give glory to God and confess your sin and repent. And he did. God, I did. I admit it, I'm I'm sinful. I am guilty. Forgive me. And God may have forgiven Achan, but he still executed him with the death penalty for it. 
And so at the end of the story, Achan gets executed. So it's basic commandment that God says should not be among the believing community. You go to Acts chapter 5 when the church first started, the first church plant again. And it was growing in Jerusalem and that uh, they were sharing and people were committing to support the work. And there was a guy named Ananias and his wife Sapphira and they sold some of their land and they wanted to give that money to the church. And then when it time, came time to give to the church what they said they were going to give, Ananias and Sapphira kept back some of the proceeds for themselves. So they made a verbal commitment, God, we're going to give you all this. Oops, changed their mind out of greed, and they kept back some of it. And God punished Ananias and Sapphira as a result. At the Sunday evening Vespers church service. It's serious. If you read Acts chapter 5, it says God was so angry by that sin in the church that God killed Ananias on the spot. Boom, fell over dead. And the elders came, grabbed him by the ankles, pulled him out. And then they went on to the next verse of the next song. And then Ananias, his wife came later, Sapphira, and they exe- God executed her as well on the spot in church for stealing and trying to cover it with a lie. Unbelievable. This is the wrath of God. He hates sin, so lying is basic, should not be found in a Christian's life or the Christian community. As a result, let's go on. Uh, Paul addresses it, exposing the stealer, the one who is stealing in a red, regular pattern. And Paul just simply says this. He says, steal no longer. This is a command, this verb. It's a command. It's an imperative. If you're stealing, stop it. Knock it off. He's talking to the Christians. So we, God could say that to us. If you're stealing, stop it. Knock it off. By the way, the negative adverb there, uh, no longer, it is an emphatic negative adverb, adverb that can be translated literally as knock it off. Quit it. Stop it. The implication, this is going on and needs to stop. Cease and desist right now. Whoever you are, the thief among you. And it's a command. So we are obligated to obey this. There is to be no stealing. And if we are stealing, we are to stop it. All kinds of stealing. What is stealing? Well, stealing basically is taking that which does not belong to you. And it comes in a lot of manners and forms, doesn't it? You know, sinners and thieves, they can be very creative. Multitasking, multifaceted. Very, uh, using great ingenuity in their stealing. It could be all the way from deliberately taking something that doesn't belong to you when somebody you think isn't looking. Or it could be withholding what doesn't belong to you, what, what you owe to somebody else. This could be you forbidding to pay back a debt. I hear sometimes of Christians who are unwilling to pay back their credit card debts. That is stealing. Christians who don't pay their taxes. That is Stealing. And on and on it goes. Pilfering, well, it was just a little bit. That is stealing. And God says, stop it. Knock it off. Don't do that. Now, the implication is here, like I said, this was a habit of life for some of the Christians in the Ephesian congregation, which could very well be that before they got saved, they were just given to stealing all the time. And it became a very ingrained, deep-rooted, lifelong habit of their lives. It was second nature. Well, everybody does it. I grew up this way. My whole family does it. My mom and dad, they taught us to do this. And so they got saved. And whole old habits are hard to break sometimes, aren't they? Maybe you got bad habits. Maybe it was cussing in your tongue. Maybe it was drinking. Maybe it was something related to immorality. Well, for some people, it was stealing. And so that needs to be broken and shattered, and only God and His Holy Spirit, the truth of His Word, addressing our mind, can change that kind of habit. But it starts with the mind. That's why Paul is giving a direct command. Christian, God expects you to stop stealing. Knock it off. So he's very clear. So this is very practical for us, very helpful. Stop stealing. So that's point number one. And then he goes on and makes a transition. Stop stealing. That's the negative part. Then he gives a positive command regarding our work ethic. 
stop stealing, and rather than stealing, but rather let him, singular, could be anybody in your congregation, don't be a thief, but rather let him labor, let him work, performing with his own hands what is good. So that's the second point. So Paul goes on to say, stop stealing, but rather be self-sufficient. What is a thief? A thief isn't self-sufficient, is he? A thief takes what belongs to somebody else to give his needs, because he's not working to supply his own needs to be self-sufficient. He's stealing from others who are trying to be self-sufficient, which is wrong. So Paul says, be self-sufficient and start working and keep working in an ongoing manner, but rather let him labor. I want to stop there. The word labor is kapiao, where we get the word copious. Sound familiar? Copious. Copious means to work hard, but also to be productive. To work hard and be productive. Copious, kapiao. This word is used several times throughout the New Testament in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and consistently it is used with just a spattering of words. They're all the same, emphasizing the same thing. It is translated as weary or wearisome. That's John chapter 4, verse 6, when it said that Jesus became weary, literally exhausted, from physical exertion. So that's what it means. Toil laboriously, wearisome, working to the point of exhaustion and getting tired. That is the basic expectation of the believer from God's point of view. Christian, you need to work. Not only do you need to work, you need to work hard until you get tired. You know, we're pretty wimpy here in America. We work 40-hour work weeks. Woo, big deal. Some cultures work 15 hours a day because they have to six days a week. I think about Jesus made a comment in the Gospels kind of a parenthetical comment one time, and he said, there are 12 hours to labor in a day. Ooh, six days a week. So Jesus wasn't looking at a 40-hour work week. 12, I'm not good at math. 12 times 6, how many? Was that at 60 hours? Says, see, I told you I wasn't good at math. 72-hour work week was the basic expectation from Jesus himself. I work a 40, I work 32-hour. Woo, whoop dee doo Well, anyway. All that just to say, God wants us to work, and he wants us to work hard, be toilsome about it, unlike the thief who takes things for free and doesn't work at all. So that's the implication here of that command, but rather let him labor, let him work hard, let him toil, let him get tired. By the way, there's another promise from Scripture that if you are given to regularly working and working hard and working long hours and laboriously with the right attitude, the way you're supposed to, for God's glory, the Bible says at the end of the day you are going to sleep peacefully. God is going to give you one of the rewards for godly hard work is peaceful sleep with a clear conscience. That's what the Bible says. The thief doesn't have a clear conscience. God is going to hound your conscience for being a thief. Hopefully you don't sleep well if you're a thief. That's the Holy Spirit of God convicting you of sin regarding stealing. So work hard. Jesus was the master of a hard worker. Worked all day, all night. The Apostle Paul was a master and model of hard work. Not only was a full-time pastor and a full-time church planter and a commissioned apostle, the Apostle Paul also had a full-time job and business on the side so that when he went from town to town, he wasn't selling the gospel for money. He wanted to be self-sufficient. He didn't want to charge people for the Bible. He'd go into town, spread the word of God, preach, raise up men, train them, build a church, plant a church, work at that church. Meanwhile, he's got a night job as a tent maker, working very hard, many long hours. 
He tells us that. So Paul is the model of working hard. If you've got your Bible, look at 1 Corinthians 4. If not, you can just listen carefully and just listen to the Apostle Paul. By the way, this is something the Apostle Paul did repeatedly throughout his epistles. He was not shy or inappropriate about reminding his congregation and his followers that he was a hard worker. As a matter of fact, you know what? He set himself up as the model of a hard worker. Be ye followers of me as I also am of Christ. So Paul had a clear conscience because he knew he was a hard worker. But just one example of many, 1 Corinthians 4. Listen to what he says to the Corinthians. To this present hour, we and his associates who are with him are both hungry and thirsty. Didn't have enough food. We are poorly clothed. We are roughly or brutally treated. As a matter of fact, we are homeless. The Apostle Paul didn't have a home at this time. Was it because he was lazy looking for a handout? No. Just the contrary. Verse 12. And we toil. See that word? We work hard. We labor to the point of exhaustion. Working with our own hands. Notice we're not looking for handouts or freebies. When we are reviled. And then he goes on. So again, he does that several times in his epistles. He was an example, the model of hard grungy work. And every Christian, to whatever degree they're able, is expected to do the same. Copious, copiously working. It's present tense, by the way, which means it needs to be a regular, ongoing pattern of behavior. You need to begin working and keep working and make it a lifestyle and a trait to the point that when people look at you and think about your reputation, what do they think of? One of the things they think of is that you are a hard worker. They're an ethical worker. They're different. They're godly, but they are a hard, diligent, persevering, exemplary worker. One of the greatest ways that a Christian can be a testimony is a testimony on the job in the secular world, where you are known in your office, your workplace, as the hardest worker, the best worker, the most submissive worker, because you're being a testimony for Jesus Christ himself. Because Colossians 3 says, you don't work for your unsaved boss. You don't work for the company, whatever it is, HP. You work for the Lord Jesus Christ where you're employed. Therefore, do your work heartily unto the Lord. 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether then you eat or drink or work at HP, do it all for the glory of God. Who should be the hardest workers in our culture? Christians. Born-again Christians. So their reputation is impeccable. So that we give glory to God and His church. Now, I want you to, if you have your Bible, go to Proverbs 31. Because it's not just the men that need to be hard workers. In Proverbs 31, if you're single and you're, look, and you're a guy and you're looking to get married someday, and you're thinking, let's see, what profile should I have for the woman I want to marry? Well, all you've got to do is go to Proverbs chapter 31. That's the virtuous, godly, model, amazing, virtuous woman. The ideal woman to marry. A woman of God. She has many characteristics and attributes, the woman of God. In Proverbs 31, she's an excellent wife. Proverbs chapter 31, verse 10. Now, from verse 10 to verse 31, it says all these amazing attributes about a woman of God. So, And also, if you're a woman today, and you're a Christian, and you want to obey God, and you want to please God, and you ask the question, God, how can I honor you? How can I live up to your expectations? How can I live a lifestyle that pleases you, God? Then, if you're a woman, you should regularly be reading Proverbs chapter 31, 10 to 31. And if you have young children who are girls, you should be reading Proverbs 31 to them regularly, sharing those attributes with them, having a Bible study with your daughters. Because this is God's model. But I just want to look at a couple of characteristics that highlight this godly woman. Look at Proverbs 31, verse 10. An excellent wife who can find... In other words, I'm going to tell you what an excellent wife or woman of God is like. 
First of all, her worth is far above jewels. She's worth more than any money in the world. And look at some of her characteristics. Verse 13, she looks for wool and flax and works, and works with her hands in delight. She is a worker. A godly woman is a worker. And notice, she looks for uh, wool and lack. She goes to great extents to find what she needs to work and to work hard. So she is a hard worker. Notice she does it with her hands. She's not afraid to get dirty. She's not afraid of calluses. She's not afraid of dirt under her fingernails. This is a godly woman. She has a great work ethic. Notice she works in delight. She doesn't have a bad attitude. She's not grumbling and complaining about the long hours or the inconveniences or the lousy uh, boss that has employed her and overseeing her, or even as she works from her home. She works in delight. She's got a great attitude about work. Verse 14, she is like merchant ships. She brings her food from afar. She's, again, she's sacrificial. She's going to great extents to be a godly worker. Verse 15, she rises while it is still night. She rises while it is still night. In other words, she's the first person up in the morning. Talk about a hard worker. That's typical of many moms, isn't it? They're the first ones up. Ready to go. And in this same passage, it says she's the last one to bed. There you go, ladies. If you're sleeping in, shame on you. You should be the first one up and the last one to bed. Husbands, hold them accountable. She rises while it's still night. In other words, she's a hard worker. Uh, Verse 16. Or no, verse 17. She girds herself with strength. She's a strong woman. Look at this. And makes her arms strong. She is physically strong. And the implication is she got that way because she's a hard worker from carrying things, from lifting things, from washing things. What I think about my mother-in-law. She's got some of the biggest biceps I've ever seen, and it's from hard work. Verse 21. She is not afraid of the snow for her household. She's not afraid. She's not going to make, in other words, she is not going to make excuses as to why she's not going to go to work today. Oh, it's snowing outside. Can't go get what I need. So she's not full of excuses. Uh, verse 22 says she makes coverings for herself, so she's handy and industrious and crafty and, uh, again, self. Uh, uh, ver- look at verse 24. She makes linen garments and sells them. Creative, industrious, working at home, working from the home. By the way, her headquarters of her job and place of employment was in her home. Isn't that encouraging? You can be a productive, hardworking mommy right at home. Uh, She makes linen garments, sells them, supplies belts to the tradesmen. So she's bringing in income with this to help her husband provide for the needs of their family. Verse 25, strength and dignity are her clothing. See, her reputation, because she's a hard worker, is awesome. She smiles at the future. She is optimistic because she knows God is in control. That's what that means. Verse 27, she looks well to the ways of her household. She makes sure that their needs are met. And she's going to work and do whatever she has to to make that happen. And she does not eat the bread of idleness. She is not lazy. She doesn't just sit around all day on the couch watching Oprah eating Twinkies all the time. (laughs) She is a hard worker. She is not idle. She is known for her work. As a matter of fact, you know what's amazing? Is all these characteristics and attributes about what makes a godly woman and the way he sums up the whole thing and distills it all down, is first and foremost, she is known to be a godly, hard worker. Of all the attributes he could have chosen on the uh, godly woman. So, Because look at verse 31. Give her the product of her hands, and let her works praise her in the gates. This godly woman was first and foremost known for being a hard worker. A godly worker. A productive worker. With the right priorities. That's awesome. And a great model to emulate. So we got Paul for men and the Proverbs 31 women for, for the ladies to follow. So let's go back to Ephesians chapter 4. Keep looking. So be self-sufficient and keep working and work hard because that's what laborious or labor or copio or copious means. Then he goes on and he says, performing with 
his own hands. Performing with your own hands. And the implication here, uh, Paul is saying, you need to not afraid, don't be afraid of work. Get engaged in work. Don't be afraid of the blisters and the calluses and the hard work and getting down and grungy and dirty if necessary. Doing whatever is necessary. Doing whatever God calls you to do. To work with your own hands. And the implication also with your own hands is you're being self-sufficient. You're not depending upon other people. To the extent that you can, you should be working, working for yourself, providing first your own needs and then also the needs you're immediately responsible for. This is particularly true of men who are the heads of their household. God has given them the role to be the provider of their home, first and foremost. So if you've got a man, a woman, a husband and wife, two physically capable, able bodies... By God's design, the husband, the able-bodied husband, by God's design, is first and foremost the provider, the basic provider of the needs of the family. And anything that the wife contributes, and if they have children, her first duty is to taking care and raising godly children. That's hard work. That's very difficult, laborious, time-consuming work. Dealing with children, raising children, that's their first priority. She got the husband and his priority, the wife and her priority, but at the same time, like the Proverbs 31 woman who had children, she also brought in a little income to supplement, to help save, even to buy some nice things. Notice purple clothing. She didn't dress in rags. So we've got to get the order of priority right in the home with respect to work as well. But being self-sufficient, working with your own hands, being productive, making a contribution, not sponging off of other people. The work of their hands is the implication once again. First uh, Thessalonians four, ten and eleven. Paul just gives this generic principle regarding work and your work ethic to the Christian community that's appropriate for us. First Thessalonians four, ten and eleven. He says this: What he expects us to do, uh, if indeed you do not practice it to all the brethren, but you, oh, we urge you, Christians, to excel, excel still more. How? Well, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and to attend to your own business, not being a busybody. With your own hands, working with your own hands. Not being a burden on society. Not being an illegitimate, needless burden on the church and other Christians. I'm saying illegitimate. To whatever extent that you can and God has gifted you, then you need to be productive work. Working with your own hands, self-sufficient. Then he goes on and he concludes that verse. I think it's very interesting. You can't miss it. Um, At the end of verse, that second part, he says, But rather let him labor, working hard, performing with his own hands, being self-sufficient and productive, what is good? In other words, the occupation that you choose, the work that you choose, your life's calling should be one that is good, legitimate, morally acceptable. In other words, your vocation is a holy vocation. Your vocation is a legitimate vocation. Did you know there are illegitimate vocations out there? You could be a member of the mafia and make some money, so on and so forth. Rahab, she had an illegitimate vocation, and when she came, became a believer in God, she needed to change her vocation. The sinful woman that went up to Jesus in the Gospels, who repented and worshipped him, who was a prostitute or a sinful woman, she had to change her vocation when she met Jesus because he said to her, go and sin no more. Change your vocation. Get out of it. Do something holy, good, legal, dignified, not compromising that lends itself to sin and the perpetuation of unholiness in the world. So that's why Paul said at the end of that verse, very important, get a job, but not just any job. Be prayerful, be considerate, get the right one, get one that is good and holy and contributes in a positive way to you, your family, the church, society. So be self-sufficient and keep working. Okay, he goes on. Let's go to the third point. So you don't steal anymore. You get a job. You're trying to be productive. You make it a life habit. You're trying to work hard. You're bringing in income. 
So you can do the basics of paying your bills, paying off debt, paying those you've stolen from, maybe, providing for basic needs of your family that God has entrusted to you and others who are in need. But it goes beyond that. And that's number three. Get your motives right with respect to working and start sharing. Start sharing. He says, in order that, in order that. It's a purpose clause. For the purpose of is what it means. Paul says, get a job, work for the rest of your life, work hard, work to the point of exhaustion, and do it for the purpose that you may have something to share with those who are in need. You know, that is a distinctive of the Christian biblical uh, work ethic. The fact that inherent in the reason that we should work, the reason that we should be employed and bring money, and one of the basic reasons we should be working is so that we can make some money and enough money and even a little extra money to give to somebody else who has a need. That's just basic to the Christian worldview. Did you know that is not part of the paradigm of the worldview of the world? It isn't. Into the world, uh, why do they work? Why do they get a job? Well, it's real simple. You want to make money and you want to make a lot of it to do, first and foremost, what? To spend it on yourself. That's why you make money. And you plan accordingly. Boy, I need to work. Okay, I need to work in a few more hours, put in a couple extra days, do this, make this deal, so so I can bring in a little more extra income so that I can get more goodies for myself, more toys for myself, uh, longer vacations for myself. The point is, it's self, self, self. Totally self-oriented. It is not other-oriented at all. It's not even on the radar. That's not a Christian ethic. The world lives for self. That's what it's all about. That's why Paul says, no, Christian, if you're thinking that way, you need to change your thinking. Basic to the reason why you work is on a regular, ongoing, habitual basis and pattern of your life is that as you bring in income, you are sharing some of your income. And you're being prioritized and wise about who you're sharing with. It's very clear in the Bible. It's all over the place. So this needs to be one of the reasons, basically, why we work. And if you're a parent, you need to teach your children to work. You need to teach them verbally the importance of working from Scripture why they should work. You need to model it in your own life of being a hard worker. You need to take them to work, get them out in the yard, get them doing hard work. Do not let them complain in their work. That's a violation of Philippians 2.14. Do all things without complaining, even raking the leaves. You need to teach your children to work. It's one of the greatest gifts you can give to your young children, to teach them to be a hard, diligent, persevering worker for the rest of their life. By the way, at our resource table, we got a, a brand new book that I got. It's out there today, only one copy, and it's called Created for Work. It's a great book written by some guy uh, teaching parents how to teach particularly their young boys of how to have a godly view of work and to work hard. It's wonderful. So be looking for that. Maybe you're interested in it. So we need to teach our children to work, principles of work, and a part of our instruction to them is you're not just working uh, to make money for yourself. You're working Part of this is so that when we have some, we're going to share this with somebody. And the word that Paul uses there is a very specific word at the, verse, the end of verse 28. He says, in order that you might share, in order, in other, and that word is specific too. It's that you might share, not give it all away. We don't work and give all of our money away. That's stupid. That is poor stewardship. God wants us to pay our bills and be responsible. So the word uh, share is very specific. Take some out of it and give it to others. And the others he wants us to give it to is very specific. Those who have need. Paul used this word several times. It's needy people who have a legitimate need. And the priority for Paul was needy people in your congregation, in your spiritual family, in your local church. Focus in and concentrate. First, priority number one is giving to God with what we take in. That's a biblical principle, right? Giving to God out of worship and thanks. Thank you, God, for my job, for my income. God, I give back to you, to the church. Then secondly is giving to specific needs that you are made aware of 
in the church, in the family of God, in the household of God. That's where the priorities are. Look at Galatians 6.10. I want to read this verse to you. It's giving to people who have legitimate needs, who are hurting, difficult circumstances, unique circumstances, and it starts in the church. At least that's from the Christian point of view. There's plenty of places you can give to, right? There's the United Way and the Red Cross and on and on it goes. I mean, the uh, opportunities for giving your money away is uh, limitless, and that's why the Bible reminds us it has to start with the church, your own family first. That's where the priority is. Paul says it explicitly, Galatians 6.10. Listen. So then, Christian, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. That's just a generic principle. Do good to all people. Specifically, he goes on and says, but especially, or but first, or in terms of your priorities when you do good. Do good to those who are of the household of the faith. The NIV says, those who are of the family of God. So that's your first priority. Giving to the needs in your local church needs to be our priority. So basic to making income is not just, oh, how can I spend all this on myself? Is God, how do you want me to use this to meet the need of somebody specific in our own fellowship? And you know, uh, church is only seven months old, but I have already been the beneficiary of gracious giving people in this congregation. Helping me out in different ways. And it wasn't always just cash. Maybe it was a material possession I needed. Maybe it was a car that I needed desperately. Yeah, for 10 bucks. That's a great gift. Um, And I personally have seen others in this congregation giving to others, uh, being very specific, prayerful, deliberate about noticing needs in the body of GBF, meeting their needs like a family. That's the way we're supposed to operate. It has been beautiful to watch. I'm just watching from the sidelines for seven months. God, this is awesome. This is the way the body is supposed to work. Being conscientious of others' needs and then sacrificially meeting those needs graciously is the way it should be. So starting first with the household of God. This was typical of the early church in Jerusalem. This was basic to Christianity. They were a family. They treated each other like that. I'm just going to read two verses from Acts. Acts 2, 44 says this about the early church. Uh, They spent time together teaching, fellowship, breaking bread, and praying together. But in addition, all those who had believed, they were together, and they had all things in common. In other words, they didn't necessarily consider everything their own. They were willing to share whatever needed to be shared for those who had need. And they began, some of them even began selling their property and their possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone had a need. There's that word again. So they were very specific and deliberate about meeting needs in the local congregation. That was awesome. Great testimony. Uh, Two chapters later, same church. They loved each other. Uh, Acts 4.32 says this, And the whole congregation of those who believed They were of one heart. See, there it is. They are unified. That's why they can do this. They trust each other. They love each other. One heart and soul. Not one of them claimed that anything belonged to them as though it were their own. But all things were common property to them. By the way, this is not communism. This is realizing that God owns everything and I'm going to share it as a need arises. It was awesome. Absolutely wonderful. So we need to keep that in mind as well. We need to... Deal with the sin of stealing when we see it in our congregation, in our own life, and repent from it and turn from it. Make others accountable for it. Change our lifestyle and our life pattern. Be committed to working and to working hard and not being afraid of hard work and being a godly example. And as we bring in income, 
pay our bills, pay back our dues, provide for those who are our own, and also keeping in mind as a priority, meeting specific needs, particularly those in our own congregation as God brings them our way. This is holy labor. This is a godly view of a work ethic. And I just pray that God helps ingrain that us in our own mind as we live for his glory in this respect. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, thank you for today. We thank you for what day this is historically, Palm Sunday. We still have an account of it in the Gospels. We know what happened. We know what Jesus did, what he was preparing to do, and doing it willingly. We thank you for that, willingly giving your life on behalf of sinners. And God, thank you for this uh, word from Paul, really from the Holy Spirit, something so practical uh, that every one of us has to deal with, work. We're confronted with it every day of our life. So God, I just pray that you would help us live by your truth, your principles, to shun sin, to reject stealing, uh, to confess our sins, to be willing to work hard for you as a testimony for Christ. And also, God, you just continue to give us a soft heart so that we are a sharing and a giving people, so that you would meet the needs of uh, those around us who have a real legitimate need, a desperate need, and that they can be taken care of. And I pray that that would be an ongoing true reality in the body of Grace Bible Fellowship and the people that you have entrusted to us so that we might live for your glory in all things that we do. And God, I, just, I do pray a special prayer this Easter week that if there are people even here who don't even know Jesus Christ personally and, and can't say with confidence that they have a relationship with you or forgiveness of sin, and that they don't even know for sure if they died, where they go, heaven or hell, or they're just not sure. God, that you would minister to them, work on their heart with your Holy Spirit, draw them to yourself, draw them with your truth, so that they might be saved and give their life to you. And we just commit them to you and everything we pray in Christ's name. Amen.